When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, welcome back to the New Books Network. This is your host, Shuan. Today, I feel very happy to invite Dr. Albert Walter to join us to introduce his newest book, The Future of Chinese Past. So the first thing I want to do today is to invite Dr. Walter to introduce himself to us. Well, thank you. Thank you, Shu. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, I'm very happy to engage in this discussion. Um, First of all, for myself, I am a professor and head of East Asian Studies at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, My primary interest is in Chinese and East Asian Buddhism, uh, but I have an enduring interest uh, in Chinese and East Asian intellectual history as well. Um, It might seem odd if I can digress a little bit, for someone with a primary interest in Buddhism to comment on sinological topics. Um, I think um, the field is such that uh, we're usually separate. The sinologists stay on one side and the Buddhist studies people stay on another. But um, my own perspective is that sinology frequently denies and marginalizes the role of Buddhism in Chinese and East Asian culture. Um, this is a complex topic that I need, I know needs more discussion, and it's not the main topic today, so I won't go into that in detail. But what I would say is that I think we can all appreciate that outsider perspectives often see things that are not evident to those who are on the inside. Um, and uh, so I maybe count myself here as a double outsider. On the one hand, I'm, um, I'm, I'm not Chinese. I look at the, the Chinese world from the perspective of somebody who studied China for a long time, but um, um, not from an insider's perspective, obviously. And also because I, my main focus is on Buddhism, which has been somewhat marginalized in, in the discussion of Chinese history and culture, I think that I, that also uh, allows me to bring a kind of an outsider perspective as well. Thank you so much for your answer. So, as you may, well, I noticed that in your introduction, you mentioned you both study Buddhism and the Chinese intellectual history. So, for the next question, I'm wondering why you are interested in studying Chinese history. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you, Shu, for asking me that. You know, because. Um, uh, I didn't start out life with that kind of interest. Uh, I became interested in China as an undergraduate when I switched majors from 
I was a business uh, major with a computer science minor. Um, and so, um, uh, and I switched to Chinese and East Asian studies with a primary interest in intellectual history. That's, that's a long, that, that, that happened a long time ago, but it's a long evolution into itself about um, how, how I came to that. Um, but basically, as an undergraduate, I took a course on Chinese history, Chinese and East Asian culture and civilization. I became extremely interested because it opened a world to me that I was unfamiliar with. And of course, we're looking at this was happened some decades ago. So there was even less familiarity than we have today. When I started out in this, um, uh, China was not a major economic or political force in the world, far, far from it. And even Japan, when I first started, was had not quite risen to the level that we think of as in the, you know, in the 19, late eighties, Japan is number one kind of uh, topic and so on and so forth. So when I, when I started out, East Asia was not in, in Japan and China were not topics of conversation in, in not only not in academia, but on, not in the public uh, discourse as well. Uh, as as we as we find them today, but I was fascinated with them um, because I understood very quickly the deep trove of resources in China, the richest record of human experience um, in existence, and I developed a passion for wanting to bring uh, this uh, record of um, of the humanities, education, and liberal arts curriculum. Uh, I wanted to bring the China Chinese perspective, the Chinese record to to this uh, broader kind of Western humanities and liberal arts discourse, because you know it was apparent at that time, and I think it still is, but but less so that that you know the courses I was taking as an undergraduate were very Western based, uh, and and I really appreciated the Western humanities approach very much, but I felt that that perspective was lacking and bordering on parochial. So I wanted to kind of, um, I got interested and I told myself at that time I would keep doing it as long as they let me. And gratefully, fortunately, I'm still doing it today. Thank you so much for your answer. So I want to say as a I want, to, I want to identify myself as an insider of the Chinese civilization or society. I really appreciate your interest and research on my country's history and the culture. So now let's turn to your book. So the first question, I'm wondering how relevant are Confucius and his teaching to the contemporary world? Yes. Well, thank you for that question. That is the question, isn't it? That's that's being raised, especially you know that's kind of the center of the discourse when we talk about the future of China's past is the revival or the attempt to revive uh, Confucianism um, in contemporary China. Um, so. Um, you know, when we talk about um, the relevance of traditional China, most people think of it in terms of the relevance of Confucianism because they kind of identify Chinese culture, uh, the past Chinese culture, they identify with Confucianism. Personally, I think that's that's a, a, a bit reductionistic 
Uh, and although I'm not claiming that Confucianism isn't important, but as we know, the Chinese tradition is much richer than, than just Confucianism. Um, but at this point, it's kind of an old question, the relevance of Confucianism to the contemporary world, because um, that, that question was raised at the, as you know, at, um, at the end of the uh, dynastic period, you know, at the, toward the end of the Qing dynasty, when um, Chinese intellectuals began to realize that China was weak in, in the face of outside um, intrusions, first by Western powers and then eventually even by Japan. So, um, you know, uh, so Confucius, which had been the kind of the mainstay of uh, especially the Chinese intellectual tradition, for, for centuries, all of a sudden became call, uh, called into question. And of course, you had some people who defended Confucianism, one thought it was possible to reform, and other people thought that they should just jettison Confucianism completely. It was the, the root of the, of the problem, not the um, means for a solution. So this has been kind of a center of debates uh, within Chinese intellectual circles for maybe 150 years or so. And so what we see in um, you know, contemporary China is a um, resumption in some sense of that, of that debate, which I have to say, I mean, as we all know, it's extremely surprising given um, the way that Confucianism was uh, castigated and criticized. Uh, especially in the early years uh, of the uh, 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 People's Republic of China. Um, uh, it, when I began studying China, you know, I, I was, uh, in the, from the very beginning, I was interested in traditional China, not in modern or, or contemporary China, uh, because I recognized that there were uh, ways of thinking, including Confucianism, that had, I felt, significant uh, contributions to make to the contemporary world uh, debate. Um, so, um, um, so, so in that sense, you know, I, I'm kind of b- revealing myself as someone who believes that Confucianism and traditional Chinese ways of thinking are, um, are uh, um, beneficial not only for China, but perhaps even to a, a broader audience. And that was one of the things that prompted me to, to write the book is when I started to, you know, I spent a lot of time in China going back and forth. Um, uh, and I began to realize, you know, the revival of Confucianism. Um, uh, you know, there, uh, if I, if I think about the question of the relevance of Confucianism to the contemporary world, I'd like to uh, point out maybe two events, at least for me, that I think were extremely important to that. First of all, uh, maybe almost 50 years ago, I think, uh, a Western scholar by the name of Herbert Fingeret wrote a book called uh, Confucius, the Secular as Sacred. And, you know, up until this time, uh, you know, this was written in the 1970s. So it was, um, you know, it was during the Cultural Revolution period. And so 
uh, nobody in China was paying any attention to Confucianism in terms of its relevance. In fact, just the opposite. So for this Western scholar to come along and argue all of a sudden that Confucianism had something um, very critical to offer the contemporary world and its problems and so on and so forth. It was uh, was um, nothing short of monumental, I think, for those of us who are interested in, in traditional China. Um, and what so what what Fingeret um, pointed to, I mean, I think he was the forerunner of was to change the discussion about Confucianism, even among scholars up until that point in time we all recognized that Confucianism was of extreme importance. If you wanted to understand Chinese and East Asian civilization, you you had to make the discussion of Confucianism, Confucian values as uh, as part of that. But this was kind of an antiquarian interest. It was an interest that belonged to the past, you know, that we needed in in order to understand Chinese tradition, we needed to understand its past. And to understand his past, we needed to understand Confucianism. So we all had that kind of approach, but none of us thought, um, neither within China or outside China, that Confucianism had anything really very relevant to to offer the contemporary world. It was an historical artifact. So when when Fingeret um, uh, wrote this book, he changed the subject on Confucianism, attempted to, and all of a sudden we were, <laughs> I remember I was almost literally scratching my head, kind of, hmm, that's interesting. That's that's a kind of an interesting perspective. So that's the first big event, at least in terms of my scholarly development, the way about uh, Confucianism and its relevance of his teaching for the second, uh, the, the, the contemporary world. The second uh, major event happened when Xi Jinping announced in the Great Hall of the People uh, in Beijing in uh, uh, 2014 conference of the International Confucian Association that um, traditional Chinese values, particularly Confucian values, were compatible with uh, the, the communist values of the People's Republic of China. That changed the discourse officially within China. Uh, about the relevance of Confucian, because up until that time, uh, people, um, you know, more or less were still um, committed or followed the sort of the malice policy on Confucianism, that Confucius was the the, the kind of arch villain of Chinese history. He was the creator of the feudal system and ha- had kept China. Uh, kind of weak and backward and realizing it, its full potential. I remember because I was in the Great Hall of the People when, that, when Xi Jinping made that announcement. And um, uh, it, was a, it was a major uh, event, not only nationally in China, but, but internationally. And I've joked to people outwards because, of course, you know Mao's body is laying uh, in state out in the Tiananmen Square. And I, I, I tell people, I swear I heard, I heard Mao grumbling <laughs> in protest <laughs> when this was going on. So this, this was such an unexpected turn of events to, for the Chinese Communist Party to give some kind of official validation uh, to Confucianism and, tradi- and to t- traditional Chinese culture. So in that sense, I think, you know, that, that's 
that was really that following those events is the, the kind of the reason that I ended up ended up writing the book. Thanks so much for your answer. For the next question, I'm wondering about how the limitations of Confucian idealism and the morality were supplemented by another deeply rooted tradition in China, legalism. Yes, uh, again, this was, um, I mean, I, I think in, in, in truth, it probably seems like less of a revelation now that I'm speaking in 2023. But at the end of the last decade, I'm not sure um, this association was as obvious as it was. As I began to research and look into this book, um, you know, um, well, let me start. I think, you know, if we look at legalism, in some sense, legalism is the, the hidden or forgotten tradition of uh, Chinese culture. We all associate it with the Qin Dynasty, Qin Shi Huangdi, and the foundation, actually, of the Chinese imperial system. So it's important historically in that regard. But I don't think many people um, have given it the kind of attention that it that it deserves, um, um, because really, what 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 I have come to to believe and realize that uh, that um, that Confucianism, in some sense, is a cover for legalism. <laughs> that the legal, we might argue that the legalist tradition is more central to the Chinese tradition than Confucianism, but Confucianism offers the, uh, you know, you know, offers the principles and the ideal, the idealistic kind of vision of China, and it's important in that regard. But I think. Um, that the um, that in fact that Confucianism often operated that way in history. That Confucianism has this kind of idealistic perspective, but underneath is a much more what you might call real politic kind of approach to um, governance, um, international relations, and so forth. That has much more. Um, interests in power structures and developing, uh, uh, you know, and maintaining authority. And I think that's what we find, where we find idealism coming to the core, coming to the fore. What I would say, though, Shu, is that, you know, the, the, the failure of Confucian idealism in some sense, or, you know, the lack of it, it's, it's not, I don't think it's unique to China. It's reminiscent of uh, the failures of idealistic, principle-based ideologies everywhere, and I mean, I, I you know, when I when I was uh, writing the book and coming to this realization, I thought of the I thought of U.S. democracy and the Constitution, and as, a, as also as a kind of a cover, an idealistic cover for the militaristic and authoritarian aspects of U.S. policy. So I don't think that you know I, I'm not trying to. You know, I don't want to isolate and criticize China uh, unnecessarily uh, in this regard because I think that it's, um, I think if we look at perhaps any tradition in the world, we're going to find this kind of dualism between what they say <laughs> and the principles they espouse on the one hand 
and what they do and what they're, you know, feel compelled and forced to do on the other. So, but I think in the kind of the Chinese uh, tradition as, you know, from the perspective of an intellectual historian, I think we owe it to ourselves to come clean, to be more honest about the role that uh, legalism has played and, uh, and continues to play um, in, Ch- in Chinese tradition. You know, when I was looking at the, um, the contemporary iterations of these traditions of China's past for the book, you know, I was struck by, um, you know, uh, how highly regarded Qin Shi Huangdi had become not only in, 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 you know, uh, not only in uh, the People's Republic of China, but also, you know, the Guomindang historians uh, began to validate Qin Shi Huangdi as a great hero. He was a great hero of Chinese history and a, 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 a strong, forceful leader. And I think there's a, a, a lot of impetus in uh, China in the 20th century as they try to assert their authority and leadership again, that there's maybe a certain kind of, may I call it nostalgia, <laughs> for Qin Shi Huangdi and, and legalism and what it accomplished. There's a, uh, a quote that I have in the book of Mao, from Mao in the 1970s, um, when, um, uh, when he was equated to Qin Shi Huangdi himself, and he says, you know, he says, Chen um, uh, Huangdi, he buried 460 scholars alive. We've buried 46,000. Uh, so he comes very, you know, he, he's very uh, upfront. You, um, you intellectuals revile us for being Chen Huangdi's, but you're wrong. We've surpassed him a hundredfold. So this is this uh, this kind of um, maybe confident belligerence in in uh, the this kind of legalist authoritarian tradition that I think is um, we have to recognize is not only part of the Chinese tradition, but it's also part of the contemporary discourse uh, about China's past in, in the contemporary contemporary world. Thank you so much. So after talking about the influence of legalism, I'm also wondering about the relevance of Taoism in contemporary mm-hmm. Chinese discourse. Yeah, I think... Um, Taoism, in some sense, is a little bit forgotten, I think, among the Chinese traditions. And um, I, don't, I, don't, um, I don't think it should be that way. Um, you know, there are two aspects of Taoism that are important for contemporary Chinese discourse. One is um, a continuation of the way that it's always been um, relevant in Chinese history. It's as a local political force, you know, as it it reminds us of the power of local culture and public opinion in China, because uh, local Dallas organizations traditionally, and I think perhaps contemporarily, become the, um, the mechanism by which people are able to voice their disagreement with the government, with central government policies. And so it may not go in contemporary discourse, it may not go under the name of 
Taoism. It may or may not go under the name of Taoism, but that local uh, uh, kind of contentious uh, public opinion is something that I think is still very relevant to contemporary China. And I'm sure that the leadership uh, you know, in Beijing is very, con- very conscious of this potential of um, kind of local, um, local movements, local political mm-hmm. movements to gain a kind of uh, force, uh, which always was, as, as you know, as we know, that, I mean, this was always um, something that central governments paid attention to because they realized that the revolutions start at, in local kind of political areas, and they kind of uh, gain gain momentum unless they're checked. So I think that there's still an aspect of that um, that kind of dynamic and mechanism that goes on in um, in China. You know, we we often we may say that China is not a democracy in the Western sense of the word, but it doesn't mean that public opinion doesn't matter. We know that you know from history. And the, you know, Taoism traditionally is, or Taoist-based movements are the avenue through which that public opinion is often expressed. But the thing about Taoism that is maybe most relevant to the contemporary Chinese discourse, if I look at Chinese discourse and its, and its influence, not just within China, but internationally, it's looking at Taoism as an environmental movement. Um, there are few traditions in the world, I think, that can claim to be as unabashedly and unapologetically environmental as Taoism. Uh, it's kind of intrinsic to the Taoist, you know, there's, there's no, um, you know, uh, I mean, the, uh, Taoism has, uh, has many gods, but there's no kind of God above in the Judeo-Christian Islamic sense that's kind of dictating the world order. The, you know, in Taoism, the world is uh, intrinsically interconnected, the phenomenal world. Um, so this, uh, the, the environment is something that is uh, of great concern um, in, in kind of articulating this interconnectedness. You know, I like to think of Taoism as representing the, the, the kind, of, uh, a kind of agricultural model in China, recycling, um, you know, the... This, uh, the cycle, the uh, cycle of the seasons, uh, is such that you know in spring we see new life coming in, into being of all sorts. If we look at you know agriculture, the, we plant our crops; they start to grow. In summer they grow, and then we harvest them at the end of summer. Um, in the fall season they start to wither away, and in the winter they they die, and they seem to become non-existent. They're dead. And then in the spring, they come out of the ground again. So this this kind of recycling um, model, I think it lends to an intrinsic um, uh, conservationism, uh, you know, comfort, you know, a, a feeling towards conservation of kind of stewardship of nature that, you know, we're not we're not stewards over nature, but we are part of this process. And um, so I think that. Taoism has some potential contributions to make um, in this regard. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. So after talking about Taoism, I'm also wondering about Buddhism. So for next question, I want to invite you to talk about the remarkable resurgence of Buddhism in contemporary China. Yes, I think along with the resurgence of Confucianism, uh, the resurgence of Buddhism is probably the most remarkable thing in China as well. You know, I visited China the first time was in the 1980s, the early 1980s. And um, there was, of course, there was no Confucianism in, in evidence, uh, but there was also really, you know, I, I can't, there was really no Buddhism in evidence either. Uh, you know, every place had been closed down. Uh, all the temples had been closed down and repurposed for become factories or um, um, lodging f- for people, uh, this kind of thing. Um, you know, and I remember, you know, I went to a famous monastery in Hangzhou at that time because I was, my research had to do with a figure from Hangzhou back at the early Song Dynasty, um, between the Tong and Song Dynasty. And uh, I remember going there, and it was actually being used as uh, uh, the military or security bureau was using it as a storage facility, right? So, I mean, this was typical at that, at that point in time. And um, there seemed to be no prospect of a revival at that, at that time. And so it was... You know, we we studied uh, Buddhism for the same reasons that we studied Confucianism. It was an antiquarian interest. It was a historical interest. We didn't see the prospect of a revival at that time. Um, So, uh, but then, you know, of course, then the revival happened, you know, from the 19, maybe late 80s, it started into the 90s and so on, and it picked up steam. And now you go to places in in China, Buddhist sites in China, and they tend to be very well-developed and very active. Um, You know, maybe um, if I could point to one symbol, and I don't know whether all of our listeners will be familiar with this, but again, it comes from Hangzhou. There is um, a famous um, pagoda that overlooks West Lake called the Leifang Pagoda. And when I was there in the 1980s, it, you know, it collapsed in 1920 something. I can't remember. Um, you know, Lucian wrote a famous essay on the collapse of the pagoda and how it symbolized the fall, <laughs> the demise of traditional China, the old China, so that they could rebuild the new and glorious China. But anyway, so I didn't even know it was there because there was no, it was rubble. There was no, um, uh, nothing to be seen. So I didn't even, you know, it was, it, it was just, well, the pile of rubble it wasn't even noticeable enough that anybody kind of, kind of knew it was there, really. And now you go there, and it's this big, prominent edifice on West Lake. So this maybe spectacularly um, represents the uh, resurgence of, of uh, Buddhism in China. But then, you know, I began to, you know, I, I wrote a, a, a different book uh, recently, on, on that uh, in some um, respects covers this topic uh, uh, as, as well. 
And um, in that book, you know, I looked at the kind of the macro long-term perspective of the pattern of suppression followed by resurgence. If you look in Chinese history, the suppression of Buddhism has occurred periodically, right? There have, you know, this is not, this is not simply a 20th century phenomenon. We go back all the way back to the Tang dynasty, even before we find that um, there are suspicions about uh, Buddhism economically, politically, socially, that they, it conflicts with um, um, Chinese cultural values, particularly Confucian values. And at times there have been the urge to suppress these and sometimes even the attempt to uh, obliterate these. If we go back to the Tang dynasty, for example, Han Yu, the famous uh, uh, precursor of the Neo-Confucian revival wrote um, very um, strongly about the need to circumscribe the Buddhist influence to really obliterate it and so on. And that's um, something that we find periodically in throughout Chinese history. But what, what's remarkable in terms of, the, uh, of, of this pattern is that after every um, um, uh, after every attempt to obliterate Chinese Buddhism, we have a revival. It's you know, so this pattern of suppression and and revival in terms of Buddhism is something. It's almost written into the DNA of Chinese culture, right? That there's 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 a, a deep suspicion towards Buddhism on the one hand, but there are deep resources of people who are very committed to Buddhism on the other, and so we see this pattern, this kind of fluctuation of. Uh, within Buddhism going kind of going back and forth. So, you know, in that sense, the resurgence of Buddhism in contemporary China is not unique. It's part of the pattern. And I think that's uh, one of the ways that we need to look at it. I think the bigger question is, why does this pattern exist? You know, I mean, China has this kind of complicated relationship with Buddhism. They can't, on the one hand, they don't, they can't live with, with it. And the other hand, they can't live without it. <laughs> you know, that, that, uh, so each attempt to uh, destroy it is followed by the resurgent. And that's what we see in the, in contemporary China as well. Thank you so much for your answer. For last question today, I want to invite you to talk about the challenges facing new Confucianism as it attempts to reformulate itself as a meaningful response to modernity. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Because this kind of returns a little bit to the first question about uh, about you asked about Confucianism and its relevance to the contemporary world, because. New Confucians would very much like to argue that uh, Confucianism is relevant to the contemporary world, and it's because of their revival um, that they're with, within their revival they're trying to, to to kind of make that case. First of all, you know the uh, let me make the first point is you know New Confucianism is something that. Um, you know, as I alluded to, you know, with the reference to Fingeret, Herbert Fingeret, and, you know, actually, it's something that 
a, a kind of a discourse that continued in the Chinese diaspora, you know, Chinese in, in Taiwan, in, uh, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, you know, the overseas Chinese community kept an affinity with the Confucian tradition. So there were people in, 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 in that community, Chinese within that community, who continued to make Confucius and Confucianism a relevant topic of discourse. And of course, then some Western scholars like Fingeret kind of picked up on that too. So the seeds of, of new Confucianism um, uh, kind of originally were laid outside of uh, mainland China. Uh, but of course, as I also mentioned with Xi Jinping's um, uh, promotion of, of uh, Confucian values, then it became also something that was very uh, legitimized within mainland China as well. And I, w- I should say, without that legitimization, we probably wouldn't be talking here today because, you know, um, it, it would still be uh, considered a peripheral. Uh, topic and not something mainstream. It would not apply to the main thrust of Chinese culture and civilization, which is mainland China. Now, you know, the other thing, um, you know, uh, you know, I think, and this also bears upon the the um, uh, revival of Buddhism. Um, you know, when when it, when traditions are faced with crisis. Um, and they try to um, revive themselves, they're faced with kind of, you know, I I like to think of it as two kinds of um, ways of of responding. One is a kind of conservative uh, approach. It's time to, well, let's return to the original teachings. In this sense, the original teachings of classical Confucianism. Uh, and we see a lot of the em- em- emphasis on that among Confucian scholars. They want to go back and kind of revive the Confucian uh, message. You know, that has a danger of like uh, what I would say of kind of being fundamentalist you know, in approach, dogmatic, rigid and elitist and not really responding very well. So the um, reinvention or to reinvent and reimagine Confucianism in new and meaningful ways I think the the approach um, is to look at um, this is my own personal opinion is to look at neo Confucianism, neo Confucianism because you know there are there have been three iterations of Confucianism in Chinese history three major iterations one is classical Confucianism which goes back to the Zhou Dynasty and Confucius formulated in the Han Dynasty then we have neo Confucianism which has its seeds kind of maybe, you know, starting with Han in the late Tang, but really in the Song Dynasty, it begins to gather momentum and really uh, um, gathers force in the Ming, Ming Dynasty. Um, so, um, and now the third iteration is the New Confucianism. If, if we go back to Neo-Confucianism, we have to, um, we have to think about what prompted uh, the Neo-Confucian response and if you look at one of the points that I would make, if you look at classical Confucianism and its emphasis and you look at neo-Confucianism and its em- emphasis, these are very, very different uh, approaches. Uh, what happened in the interim? 
and it, Buddhism. To put, to put it short, Buddhism happened in the interim, and so we, when you look at Neo-Confucianism, I think it's most instructive to look at it as a response to the questions and perspectives that Buddhism raised. You know, for example, in you know in Neo-Confucianism, they emphasize Li or principle. Um, classical Confucianism has almost nothing to say about Li or principle. This is a this was a Buddhist concept that came in, and so the Neo-Confucians repurposed it and, and um, reinterpreted it. We can also look at Xin, the mind or the heart. Um, you know that, of course, uh, classical Confucianism has some things to say about this, but not nearly as much as the Buddhist perspective, which is very uh, psychological in its uh, emphasis and really through through meditation and mental cultivation, this is the kind of the harder essence of Buddhism. So Neo-Confucianism need to, needed to develop um, a whole new system of, of sorts that could compete, you know, alongside of the Buddhist emphasis. Um, you know, the metaphysics, uh, Buddhist metaphysics, you know, inspired a kind of a Confucian idea of metaphysics that we don't find in classical Confucianism. I suppose I could go on and on and on, but, the, but this is the idea. And my point is, is that new Confucians need to take their cue, take their lead from Neo-Confucians. That Neo-Confucianism, in order to, actually, Neo-Confucianism is a very creative and inventive response to the situation. Uh, but it's because it was creative and inventive that it succeeded. If new Confucians want to succeed, uh, they need to take the same kind of cue. Of course, it's, B- Buddhism isn't setting the agenda anymore, but we have, uh, well, Western ideas and concepts about so many different things, you know, about government, about individuality, about gender relations, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And I think that new Confucianism, if they want to form a a meaningful response to modernity, they need to address their issues, but do it like the Neo-Confucians do it, do it in a very kind of Confucian way. And if they can find the formula to do that, I think there's some potential. Um, And I think you know, that's, a, that's something that's occurring, um, you know, and has been occurring, although I don't think that, um, I mean, in my own personal uh, belief, I think a lot of them are mired into uh, maybe um, kind of um, returning to the original teachings of Confucianism and finding the solution there, when in fact they need to be kind of inspired. They need to return to the original teachings of Confucianism, but they need to be inspired to interpret it in, in almost unimaginable ways that then, uh, then, then original Confucianism had to offer in its perspectives. Okay, thanks so much for your answer again. So, so that's all 
I hope you have answered all my questions today. So at the end of our episode today, I want to directly talk to our audience. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a Chinese national, so I will appreciate Dr. Wilder's studies and research interest in my own nation's culture. And uh, as a chi- both a Chinese historian and a Chinese national, I, I want to say when I read Dr. Wilder's newest book, The Future of China's Past, I learn a lot. Especially as a historian, I believe the best way to understand the present, the contemporary China, and the future of China and the world is to is the first thing you need to do is to understand the past, the history, the, those ideologies shape Chinese history and also shape the contemporary Chinese discourse. Can I add one more? May I add one more thing? You know, because as you're talking about, and one one thing that I want to add that I really wanted reason I wanted to read this book is that, you know, unlike when I was a young undergraduate student, as I mentioned before, and the relevance of the China discourse seemed remote and um, uninteresting to most people, the world has changed, obviously, dramatically. The China question perspective, however it develops, it's not going away. This is something that is crucial, not just to China's future, but to the world's future, that we need to engage and we need to understand what's going on. This was the real kind of um, reason why I wrote the book is because I felt like, you know, a lot of of people are talking about China today, but they're doing it from a particular perspective, from economics, politics, international relations. And a lot of it, quite frankly, is, is negative. And but I but I thought that you know okay these perspectives um, are meaningful but there's something missing from the dialogue the debate and something that's missing that is essential to to who China is and what it wants to be and that's this debate about its traditions and their and their relevance so I think I mean I'll leave it uh, leave that with you but I just wanted to kind of throw that in there that you know that. This is not, um, you know, this is not an insignificant uh, debate that's going on. China and East Asia are integrating into the world, whether the rest of the world likes it or not, it's happening. And so the best, you know, as an educator, the best way to participate is to be informed and to be informed in the fullest scope and not just from kind of uh, some kind of uh, contemporary, narrow, or ideological perspective. Thank you so much for your supplemental um, ideas. So at, at, at the end, I want to say, even for some of our audience, you are not, I mean, big fans of Chinese culture, Chinese society, but if you, uh, you as well as us, you take intense concern about the future of the world, we still, I mean, I personally still recommend to buy a copy of Dr. Albert Wilder's newest book, The Future of China's Past. It's a best, it's very important you need to understand China in terms of its importance for the world today and the future. So please consider, buy, again, buy a copy of this book. I want to repeat the title, The Future of China's Past. You need to understand the past to understand, and then you can really understand the future. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. Have a good day. Yeah, thank you so much, Shu. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you.